So this afternoon we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to go ahead and read that for us now. Mark chapter 3. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of, at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, before we really get into the meat of this passage today, I'm going to take some time. I think it will be helpful for us to take a step back and look at some of the formative elements of the theology of the Christian Sabbath, especially in the context of Patrick's sermon to us recently a few weeks ago and Woody's teaching last Sunday as well on uh, Mark chapter 2, the end of Mark chapter 2, specifically verses 23 through 28, uh, where Christ's disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath, and in response to the accusations that it was not lawful for them to do so, Jesus pointed to David and the eating of the showbread, and then says two things. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So very fundamentally, in origin, uh, in Reformed theology, we tend to talk about these three distinct types of law, moral, civil, and ceremonial. Is the Sabbath part of the ceremonial law, fundamentally? Where is it first given? Excellent, excellent, excellent. That is correct. Creation is first. The Sabbath is first given by divine example. In Genesis 2, 1 through 2, where God has finished his work of creation and rests from that work. And the Bible says he blessed the day and made it holy. Now, before we even get to the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, this is actually alluded to in Exodus chapter 16 where God gave them manna from heaven, which we actually, uh, uh, Preston alluded to as well in Psalm, in Psalm 78 today, and instructed them to gather twice their regular amount on the sixth day so that they would have enough for the seventh. And Moses in that chapter specifically calls the seventh a holy Sabbath and notes that the people rested on the seventh day. So we have the creation example this is alluded to then, of course, before the law is actually given in the Ten Commandments. And then it's stated explicitly in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, that we work one or six days out of seven, and we rest one day out of seven, because God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh day. It is, of course reiterated in Deuteronomy 5 when Moses gives the law again, the Ten Commandments again. And there's a bit of a, an added commentary in Deuteronomy 5 in verses 12 through 15 where Moses tells the people that they should honor the Sabbath in part 
because they were slaves in Egypt and because God had delivered them. He specifically tells them to remember the Sabbath because you were slaves in Egypt. So here are some specific elements to keep in mind regarding the Sabbath, the essence of the Sabbath, specific things to keep in mind. First is rest. We are continually provided examples and instructed to work in six days and to keep the Sabbath as a rest. Now this rest has two fundamental parts to it. It is rest in the providential work of God and rest in the redemptive work of Christ. There's providential rest and redemptive rest. In the creation week, our response to the divine example is to rest in God's good providence, trusting that he is sovereign, that he cares for us, that he provides for us, recognizing that we are finite and that it is God who governs the world and directs its affairs, not we creatures. So our rest in God's providence, rest from our daily labors or maintenances, orients us to our Father who sovereignly upholds the universe whether we are actively working or not. In Deuteronomy 5 specifically, we see explicit declaration that the Sabbath has the redemptive rest aspect to it. We know that the freedom from slavery in Egypt is representative of our freedom from slavery to sin. And from the rest of scripture in passage like, like Matthew 28, 1 and Hebrews 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4, that this is a day we bear witness to the fact that we rest in Christ alone for salvation and for life. Having ceased from our labor of trying to earn that salvation that is offered. That the New Testament pre-glorification fulfillment of this is the embracing of the rest that we have by virtue of being joined together with Christ by ceasing from our daily labors and our worldly or creaturely centered activities and devoting the day to worship and spiritual rest and renewal. And note that like today, we hear the word preached. We hear the word of life given to us on the Christian Sabbath. Now, we need to consider this kind of a question. So what kind of rest? I've given kind of two different um, parts of rest. What kind of rest is this? The divine example in Genesis 2 is that this is an active rest. God's rest is not inactivity but ceasing from the work of creation and beginning the works of providence and redemption. God doesn't just stop doing stuff. He ceases from his work of creation. We cease from our labor directed towards income or productivity and enter by divine example into an active rest. Now, in physics, a simplified definition of work is force applied over distance. So if I pick up the Bible here and lift it up, I have performed work on the Bible. I have, I have produced a force that is applied over a distance, right? So we engage in this kind of work defined in physics 
all the time to move when we move tables in here for lunch we use this kind of work and rest is considered an object is said to be at rest if it does not change its position with respect to its surroundings with time so the bible is at rest right now because it hasn't changed its position with its respect to these surroundings does that make sense these are not the concepts that we are contrasting in work and rest. And I say this because we will tend to have these concepts at least kind of fill in here and we'll, we'll muddle stuff up if we don't get what work is and what resting is with respect to the Sabbath. We are not resting in inactivity from all physics work. We are resting in faith and in worship in the providential work of our God and the redemption we lay hold of in Christ. Our Sabbath rest is the rest of delight with God in the manifestation of his glory in creation, providence, and redemption. We could describe this as a longing for rest from sin. Now the, the physics thing that may seem like a bit of a silly example, but again, it, it is likely that we have some element of this type of thinking in our minds when we think about work and rest when it comes to the Sabbath. And this is directly relevant to this passage in Mark that we're looking at, this issue of healing and work and rest. An important note about the placement of the Sabbath will be helpful for fully grasping the meaning of rest. I'm actually going to read here from Dr. Joseph Moorcraft's commentary on the Westminster Standards called Authentic Christianity. I have a volume of that sitting here. And uh, yes, I, I know it's the horror of consulting a Presbyterian on this when we're Reformed Baptist. But this, this will be helpful for us in looking at our passage. In six days, God created and organized the universe and pronounced it all very good. On the seventh day of that creation week, he rested. He contemplated with great approval and satisfaction, adored and delighted in the revelation of his glory in his creation. The Sabbath was the first full day of Adam's week, thereby symbolizing rest obtained and enjoyed in God. But with his fall and throughout the Old Testament to the resurrection of Jesus, it was the last day of the week for which he had to wait each week, symbolizing the loss of this rest with God that he enjoyed before the fall and the need of waiting in faith for the promised Messiah who would crush the serpent's head in the fullness of time the Messiah of God arrived in the person of Jesus Christ to bring rest from sin and to restore a restful fellowship with God through his own death through his own life death and resurrection and to illustrate that he did in fact accomplish this salvation for his people he restored the first day Sabbath experience which Adam lost with his disobedience. And uh, uh, Moorcraft later quotes Francis Nigel Lee in Lee's book, The Covenantal Sabbath, saying, At Calvary, Christ rested in his death on the last Saturday Sabbath. That Sabbath died with him. And as the second Adam, he now rests eternally in his finished work. Now there is, of course, a yet future full consummation and enjoyment of this rest. And our Sabbath rest now points as well towards that in the eternal state. Now much more can be said about the move of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday.
but I'm going to leave that for later if we have questions or time. I want to make sure we actually get through our passage here in Mark. There are, there are lots of, of things that we can look at in Scripture to, to examine that. So apart from that, does anybody have any questions so far on the material that we've looked at? This idea of the Sabbath, rest, providential rest, redemptive rest, any of those kinds of things. So we'll quickly recap. Sabbath was instituted in Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. The pattern is God's creation rest. The goal is man's redemption rest. Rest is not an inactive rest. It is not slothful. It certainly includes physical rest, but not inactivity. It is a rest from our regular labors or employment that is focused on spiritual rest and renewal in worship. The day to be set apart and devoted to God. This orients us to God and includes symbolism reminding Old Covenant believers principally of what has been lost in the fall and New Covenant believers principally of what has been gained in Christ. As providential and redemptive rests, there's an already not yet aspect of redemption, of course, and it is for God's glory and for our good. Man needs physical and spiritual rest. So with these aspects in mind, let's look again at our passage. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the first question, of course, that we might ask is originally, who is they? Who is it that, uh, that is watching Jesus to accuse him? The context in Mark makes it clear, but it's also explicitly stated earlier on in the parallel passages in Luke 6 and Matthew 12. They is the scribes and Pharisees here, right? Now, the second question then is, why were they there? What's their goal in being in the synagogue watching Jesus? They want to crucify him. That's very good, Woody. I like that. They want to crucify him. They're looking to, to accuse him, to trap him, right? So contrast this to Jesus. Why is he there? What's on his heart that we see in this in this passage? Save life. Save life. Originally, he had gone into the synagogues to preach. Excellent. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. He's there to, to worship, teach, and to bring life. In the passage in Luke, it says that he knew their thoughts. So here it says that uh, they watched Jesus to see whether they would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And in Luke it says he knew their thoughts and spoke to the man with the withered hand, telling him to come forward. Now, the parallel passage in Matthew indicates that the Pharisees asked Jesus whether it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. There is no contradiction between these accounts, although it may seem like it in first place. Uh, Hendrickson, the, the gentleman who wrote a commentary on, on Mark that, that those of us who are teaching have been looking at as a helpful guide, 
uh, notes, he explains that Jesus, knowing what was on their minds, makes them voice it out loud and then responds to them, right? So as with many of the parallel accounts in the Gospels, not every little detail is recorded in each account. But they all synthesize perfectly well. Jesus now asks the Pharisees then, he challenges them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? So, is it a violation of the law, in light of everything that we've studied, for Jesus to perform this work of healing on the Sabbath? Is it a violation of the law? No. No, absolutely He's already not. demonstrated in the previous In the chapter. previous chapter, yes, sir. Yes, sir, with the, with the showbed. Absolutely. Or with the, the plucking grain, which he references the showbread, and claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. So, in fact, I, I actually have here in my notes, what he, the first thing I was going to say is that is what he has examined last week. Man is not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. And that not just Jews or Christians. The Sabbath is made for mankind generally. The Sabbath is merciful and for man's good especially for the rest and reorientation of man. Yes, sir? This is a microcosm of Jesus' work in social. He says, in other places, if I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. In this, in this moment, he is healing this man's hand so that he can be restored to the fullness of his physical life and get back about his work and whatever, you know, you hurt your hand and you know how it is when you trying to do other things, how Absolutely, absolutely. He has come to give life and life more abundantly. And Aaron's exactly right. That's a, that's a microcosm here of the Sabbath broadly and of, and of Jesus' work in redemption. And so, in fact, in our passage here, this healing is a picture of deliverance that God has provided to his people. It is exactly the kind of thing that we should embrace on the Sabbath. Life can be saved. And man can be healed since rest, life, and redemption are the essence of the Sabbath. Now, the wages of sin are death. And James tells us that the law of of God is the perfect law of liberty. The way of life and healing is the way that is in accordance with the Sabbath and not the ways of death or harm. Does that make sense? 
Further, in asking this question, Jesus says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus actually goes on the offensive here. He doesn't merely ask them in return, is it lawful to heal this man? Is it lawful to do good or to save life? Those are the issues most obviously under consideration. He goes further and contrasts that with doing, doing good with doing harm and saving life with killing. Now this is important. When I asked earlier why they were there, Woody gave us the really, really direct to the heart of the matter answer to crucify him. They seek to harm Jesus. They seek murder against Jesus in their hearts. If you look at verse 6, you can see the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with their Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now certainly that's the, the culmination of the response after Jesus heals the, the man's hand. But that is exactly in line with their heart attitude from the beginning. That's what they're there for. And Jesus knows that and he calls them out for it. He specifically contrasts doing good with doing harm. His work of doing good with their work of doing harm. His work of healing and giving life with their intent and desire to kill. And we'll get to Jesus' response to this here in a minute, but I want to note two other elements here. Uh, I think this is, this is helpful. This kind of takes a, another element, but it's, it's, a, it's a really helpful way to tie a lot of the things of the Sabbath together. So concerning the harm intended in this passage, um, Rushduni has a description, R.J. Rushduni has a description in his book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, of the interrelation of the spiritual and the physical with respect to the Sabbath. He says this, With regard to men, continued stress leads to death, we are told. Man's inability to rest, his lack of a true Sabbath, his lack of faith, lead to a stress-filled life which ends in death. Man needs rest. He requires the Sabbath truly to live, but without faith, he cannot have true rest, nor can he give rest to others, to the soil or to the animal creation. So Rushdini ties these two things together here, this idea of stress and, and rest and the Sabbath and faith and giving rest to others. The Pharisees did not have true faith, and as a result, they are unable to offer any rest to other men. Joe, did you have something to add? Uh, we ended up seeing this, I think, in the French Revolution. We ended up moving from mm. seven-day work week to mm. ten-day work week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Brush Jenny notes in the Institutes that Voltaire rightly understood that if you wanted to destroy Christianity, you would attack the Sabbath, the one day and seven rest. And, and again, because of this tie to, to faith. Yeah, and they, they were explicit about that. Like, they, they didn't hide that. It was just explicitly stated in their writings and their propaganda at the time. We're getting rid of this Christianity. We'll put a place in, we're getting rid of God. We'll place reason on the throne. What kind of sense is and so there's a good question that arises here as well again a little bit separate from from the direct passage that we're looking at but if they're that interested in attacking the sabbath do we value it that much necessarily do we often cast it aside and not really consider and care so looking again at Jesus' question to them, we note that it exposes hypocrisy in a couple of ways. One, 
that they being teachers of the law and ever so certain of their knowledge should have been able to give the right answer to the question, right? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? And indeed, they knew the right answer, but they were unwilling to give it. Again, this is not really an issue of their competency in the law in terms of their, their ability to have head knowledge. They certainly knew the answer. And in, as a matter of fact, too, the second example of hypocrisy, the parallel passage in Matthew, Jesus points out that if any among them had a sheep who fell into the pit on the Sabbath, they would absolutely engage in work to save it. So he demonstrates their own hypocrisy before them and before God in healing or saving life on the Sabbath. And how much greater was their interest? So do they place the life of an animal above men in that, in that example? But also this demonstrates the issue really isn't so much about they, that they're placing the emphasis on the life of animals as above people. This is about their relationship with the law and with God. This is, this is a heart issue here, fundamentally. Now, how does Jesus respond? So he asked them this question, and they were silent. And when they were silent to his challenge, he looks around at them in anger. And we're given the reason, of course, for his anger. He's grieved at the hardness of their hearts. So does Jesus do well? To be angry. Now, obviously, I mean that, that's that's kind of a funny question for me to ask in terms of a sure. I'm going to entrap you in heresy if you say no. Right? Okay. But but it, it behooves us to really consider why. Okay. He is jealous for both the Sabbath and its right keeping, and for love and care for people. He is angry that men would so profane the Sabbath. Right. Sir, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. He's reclaiming his kingdom. It is also interesting to note here how his anger is displayed. So it describes him as looking around them at anger. Does he take it out on them? Does he address them? He displays and resolves his anger by healing the one in need. And really his anger is the concomitant of love. He pours out that love in healing the man. He's angry because this is not what the Sabbath is meant for, profaning the Sabbath with iniquity. And so it's that Anger and pair and love are paired together here. His love for the Sabbath and his love for people means that he must be angry when they profane it. And as discussed, the, the Pharisees do not glory in the healing. <clears throat> they are not filled with joy and are not pleased that a man has been healed, nor as though they have been corrected. This isn't simply that they had a misunderstanding of the Sabbath and Jesus has shown them, hey, th this is actually, this is not just okay, it's not just lawful, this is good and right here. They, they don't have this attitude that they've been corrected and can reorient their attitude towards the Sabbath, towards God. 
They harden their hearts further and work to construct plans to destroy Jesus. Does anyone have any other questions at the moment? Well, in an indirect way, uh, we, should, we should ask ourselves, uh, are we at times guilty of a similar type of hardness of our heart? Not necessarily with regard simply to the Sabbath, but to what the Sabbath is addressing, uh, the, the, the delight in our hearts for the life of redemption. Or do we also not have, and I'm thinking of when Christ uh, was interacting with the disciples, several, there's at least twice I can think of, when uh, Christ says, are your hearts yet hard? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the, the point here is that I think in this text we see the need to recognize that apart from grace, we would be with the Pharisees. Absolutely, right, right. Amen. And in, in regard with that, or, or paralleled and tied with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make one more note here. Um, Dr. Moorcraft concludes a section that I, that I quoted earlier uh, at length, the, the section dealing with uh, the six days that God created and organized the universe, Adam's creation week, and then the Messiah, so this, this, this element of what was lost in the fall, this first day Sabbath rest in, in a sense and then the, the restoration of that. He concludes that with this thought. Paradise lost is now paradise restored in Christ. And in the continuing first day Sabbath is a testimony to that fact. Patrick has spoken to us in, in his sermon about this, uh, this idea of the, the vacation at the beach, right? So is it, is it burdensome for us to lay aside our regular employment the concerns of the maintenance of the house, these kinds of things, to not be on our phone all day if we take a trip to the beach to enjoy that. So if that doesn't seem burdensome to us, how much less burdensome the enjoyment of the redemptive rest in Christ, resting from our works of provision and resting in God's work in us of redemption for sin. The law of the Sabbath is not to restrict us as Christ has shown here, but to free us to truly enjoy God, to turn our thoughts and our hearts towards him. Yes, sir. It makes me think, uh, we've, uh, some of the men here, uh, Dr. Arpita read J.C. Ryle's holiness and, and contemplating the practice of holiness as practice for living heaven. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it's a similar concept that we can't, if we can't enjoy holiness or the Sabbath here, what makes, what makes us think we will enjoy being in the presence of God? Absolutely. Uh, an element I don't know that I've, I've brought out as fully today is that, that that future final consummation fulfillment of the Sabbath rest. Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about this as well, that, that we're still looking forward to. So in Christ, Christ has, has raised from the dead. And we have life joined with him, and we celebrate that, that turning point in history. But there's the already not yet aspect here. We are not yet in the full culmination of that, that kingdom and of that Sabbath rest in, in eternity. So if Christ 
delighted in healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, should we not expect that he delights in healing us, in fellowshipping with us, and in our sole focus being on him and his work? Most, if not all, of Christ's post-resurrection appearances occur on Sundays. He made it clear again through divine example that he especially delights in drawing us near to him, and especially through the means of grace, through the worship, through worship and the preaching of the word. We can draw near to him and enjoy this fulfillment of a Sabbath rest, and we should expect, as we see here in our passage, that Jesus delights in bringing us healing. Does anyone else have any questions or any comments to, to add to that? All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us.